the romance of Antarctica is cultivated in nature documentaries and previous expedition stories, but the reality of, of life on a, an Antarctic station, regardless of which nation runs the station, can be quite stark and can be quite harsh and can, um, can be is a challenge. Bases in Antarctica are designed to support operations either all year round, which is what the Australian bases do, or for summer periods, which is what some of the bases of other nations do. There's a accommodation blocks, for example, there's a communal eating area, much like a cafeteria, um, there's a, normally a medical facility. Um, you know, certainly the Australian program probably has the most advanced medical facilities of any of the nations in Antarctica. Um, there's also workshops for maintaining equipment. There's sort of uh, wharves or, or, or areas that ships can come to to dock to unload supplies. And then on top of all of that, then there's the, the science. Regardless of whichever station you're at down there, the station needs to be able to support you, and not just for work, but needs to be able to support you socially as well. like a library to keep people interested you need a gym you need you know a communal area where people can eat because we as a species come together over food it's what we do as well as areas for people to work and people to relax and um, all of those things are really important if you're asking people to take 12 months out of their life and and um, go and work in these environments Interpersonal issues become a, a huge part of that, and it's one of the reasons that NASA looks at um, uh, looks at interpersonal issues in, in, in extreme environments, Antarctica being one of them, um, to inform future spaceflight opportunities. Dr. John Cherry is an Antarctic medical practitioner. He's currently preparing for a 12-month stint at the Davis Research Station. Davis is Australia's southernmost Antarctic facility, sitting about 20 kilometres from the edge of the continental ice sheet. John's role in Antarctica is to act as the sole medical expert in a team of about 100 people. He's going to be relied upon for anything from minor scratches to life-threatening medical emergencies. It's an incredible honour and puts John in esteemed company with only a small select group of doctors having ever worked in the same role since the station's establishment in the 1950s. But how does one become an Antarctic doctor? What gives John the edge over other experts in the field? I think I've had anything but a direct route to where I've got to now. The road to where he finds himself now is far from conventional. From high schools in Sydney to NASA, John's work has taken him far and wide. This week's episode begins before John's journey to Australia, before his time as a pilot, a teacher, an astrophysicist, and even before he was a medical doctor. It begins in the bustling London Underground. This train is 
did some work experience for what was the equivalent of the Department of Education there. And uh, I had two weeks in an office and I would have been, oh, maybe 15, maybe 15, 16. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, this is fun because I, I grew up in southeast London. I got to catch the train into London. And I thought, oh, this is fun. I get to catch the train. in central London and, 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 and play at being you know an office worker and after two weeks I thought there's no way I can do this I can't sit behind a desk for the rest of my life and that was a very enlightening moment a very enlightening realization and uh, I think yeah sitting behind a desk is not what I'm made for. I think what am I doing behind a desk when Shackleton was writing stories of glory over in Antarctica. <laughs> Growing up in the UK as I did you grow up with stories of Antarctic explorers of old. You know, the uh, Captain Scott's, the Shackleton's. The history of British expeditions and much of that sort of harks back to a time of empire and uh, obviously a previous time. The main results of the British Antarctic Expedition of 1907 under my command are as follows. That's sort of in, ingrained in, the, in British culture and I, I remember as a child just being fascinated by this place. We made many interesting geological and scientific discoveries and had many narrow escapes the whole time. There's somewhere that's almost completely ice and there's penguins and yet there are people who've been there and explored there and live there, you know, on these stations. I think over, over the years that interest has only grown. Uh, the, the reality is Antarctica remains one of, if not the last great unexplored wilderness. Do you think that that sort of that search for adventure then sort of led you to join the military reserves in the UK? Uh, that it was that idea that maybe they would give me the opportunity to do something that was as far away from a desk as I could get reasonably at my level and time? Definitely part of it, for, for sure. I think the other part of it is, you know, I, I grew up, as I said, in southeast London, quite near Biggin Hill. And for any of your listeners who aren't aware, Biggin Hill was the home of the Royal Air Force during World War Two and during the Battle of Britain. The flight path for, for Biggin Hill Airport, actually sort of the flight path went over my house where I grew up. So the sound of summer for me was watching airplanes go overhead uh, as they were coming into land um, or watching the Biggin Hill Airfare, which is a, a fairly big air show in the UK uh, with a real sort of bent towards um, Spitfires and Hurricanes and World War II aircraft. And so when I, I went to the University of Manchester to do astrophysics as my um, first degree, and really it was 
you know, O week, fresher week, that, that first week on campus. And I walked past this stall that said Royal Air Force Reserves. And they said, oh, well, we can teach you to fly. And I thought, well, I want to do that. That sounds great. So I put an application in and I think the opportunity to get some flying training was a, a big draw card for me. But I'm sure the adventure was a big draw card as well. And that history of growing up in amongst that history of, of the Royal Air Force was a contributor as well. And I think probably in combination, my, my you know, a lot of people's grandparents who grew up in the UK, um, their grandparents fought in a various branch of the military in World War Two, And my grandfather was in the Royal Air Force in World War Two, And so there seemed like a nice sort of a nice heritage and history there. And uh, that's sort of what pushed me to, to, to enlist. Yeah. Tell me about what it was like to first learn to fly in a place with so much heritage and history in that area to it. I imagine hopping behind a British Air Force training fixed wing aircraft uh, must have felt pretty special uh, launching out of the same bases where the Battle of Britain was fought. Yeah, so I was um, based in the Manchester and Salford University Air Squadron, which was based um, kind of up north near Blackpool. And so if you go flying in Australia, you'll often see clear blue skies and beautiful beaches and beautiful pristine blue oceans. Um, Blackpool is is pretty rough as a as a flying environment. It's wet and it's cold and it's grey uh, and it's on the coast and when you go flying you have to wear a survival suit in case the aircraft goes down because you only have a few minutes of survival time if you land in the water so it's pretty unforgiving. The opportunity to go up in a, in a um, trained in tutor aircraft which is a single engine propeller aircraft uh, which are very manoeuvrable as a sort of a almost like a full glass canopy kind of aircraft with a, an instructor seated right next to you. Um, and the opportunity to go up and, and train and practice and then get shown the ropes by former fast jet pilots, former uh, lightning pilots, former quick reactionary force pilots who'd you know, been part of the defence force for the UK during the Cold War and on rapid alert for... Um, you know, Soviet fighters coming or Soviet bombers and Soviet fighters coming over was incredible, you know, and uh, doing that in between studying and studying astrophysics, and obviously that's a fairly involved degree, getting to do both at the same time was, uh, I mean, a really wonderful experience. I remember when I joined the Australian Army Reserve, I was 17 at the time, and probably the, the best part of that experience was being able to train with people who I would never usually get the chance to interact with. Uh, people who were my parents' age, all the way through to people who were about my age, um, and have a context in which it was equalised. So you weren't meeting people as friends of your parents or adults who were in senior positions in a professional capacity. You were meeting them as colleagues and friends. And that changes the dynamic of how you interact with people and, and the opportunities that come from that and the connections that come with that. And in some ways, it matures you, I think, a lot faster as well to be exposed to such an interesting and diverse range of people. Um, that you wouldn't necessarily get out of high school when you're that sort of age. And the other thing that I think it, it taught me, and I'm interested in whether you had this similar experience, was I remember thinking to myself, if the Australian government is willing to spend this much money on training me to be an infantry platoon commander, and they're going to give me the opportunity to take the reins uh, of 35 to 40 people leading a platoon attack with, you know, calling in uh, artillery support and live ammunition and all of these sorts of things, and I'm 17 years old, then 
maybe there isn't that much of a limit on what I can do if I simply just apply myself and ask for the opportunities or take the opportunities as they come. Maybe it's not so difficult um, to, or maybe maybe there's not as many limits as I thought. And maybe that we're taught to think about coming out of high school where we're sort of shown you have to go and get a degree. And once you've got a degree, then you can go and do this and then you can go and do this. And then maybe in 30, 40 years time, you'll get to do something really cool when you've got enough experience and seniority. Um, it was a really liberating experience for me. And I'm interested in whether or not when you were up there flying with some of those jet pilots, as I imagine sort of like an 18 to 19 year old at that time, whether you had a similar reflection. You're absolutely right. Going into an organisation like the Air Force and having the opportunity to meet people from such a varied array of backgrounds who all share that same common motivation to, I want to say achieve, but that's a bit stereotypical. It's more a motivation to almost think outside the square or, or sort of live a, a, an extraordinary life. That for me has been was it was as a as a young young man was a tremendously motivating experience. Um, but I, I think now about where some of my friends and colleagues have ended up, and you know that that spirit of achievement and adventure and seeking out opportunities has led some of them to some amazing places, and not necessarily in the military, in civilian life, in a range of different organisations and backgrounds and careers and the, the the common thread amongst them all is that they're motivated, intelligent and, and compassionate people who want to, you know, grab life by the reins and, and get the most out of it that they can. Those sorts of people at such a young age for me was a real motivator that, hey, the sky really is the limit, you know. We, we use that as a cliche a lot, but you really can achieve whatever you want to achieve with hard work and, and dedication and, uh, and self-belief and recognising that opportunities are there to be seized and someone has to have the opportunity, so why shouldn't that be you? It seems to me that that was a pretty ingrained message in your mind from that point on, just in demonstrated by your actions, because you went on to be a teacher after that for a period of time. And so you had the opportunity to then be a person who was able to introduce younger kids to that mindset, which had become inculcated in you. And I want you to tell the story about how you managed to get some Australian high school students down to the most remote location on earth in Antarctica with their parents and school's approval. Yeah, so I was a high school science teacher and high school physics teacher and deputy head of science, at, in fact, um, at a, a big private school in Sydney. During that time, I um, had a sort of a chance encounter with uh, someone who was a, a parent at the school, but also had some involvement with working down in Antarctica. And he had set up a, a company many years ago that was basically doing operations out of a place called Union Glacier. Which is a, a camp about halfway to the South Pole um, on the South American side of Antarctica. And he'd set up the organisation with some other, other partners uh, primarily as a way to support pretty much high net worth individuals who were trying to do the seven summits. So. The seven summits being the, climbing the highest mountain on each of the, the seven continents. 
and the highest mountain in Antarctica is called Vincent Massif. Uh, and he had set this up to do that, but ultimately it's this private base sort of grew over time and he ended up supporting more, more science opportunities with the National Science Foundation out of the US and other sort of stakeholders around the world. In this sort of chance meeting with this, this guy, we, uh, we sort of got talking and it has a fascinating background. And, you know, for me, getting the opportunity to even talk to him was wonderful and hear some stories. I remember saying, oh, it'd be great to be able to get some students down there, wouldn't it? It'd be fantastic. And his response was, well, why not? Let's do it. And it kind of grew from there, really. It's obviously pretty unusual and pretty rare to be able to take a group of high school students down to Antarctica. Um, and the logistics of that are quite a challenge. Imagine in the amount of paperwork you need to, you know, take a high school group to the zoo, the risk assessments and the forms you need to fill in. Now imagine flying them in an ex-communist aircraft into, uh, uh, into halfway to the South Pole with crevasses everywhere and, and, and very cold temperatures and extreme weather and extreme environment. Selection process wasn't really focused on um, purely on academics and having the, you know, the, the brightest or student or the student who could write the best essay. It was more on the holistic approach and the, the motivation for people and why they would want to do it. And I, I was incredibly lucky to take three students down who I'm still in touch with today. Their lives have gone in very different directions, but all are doing really wonderful things. And for me, the opportunity to engage them with scientific research down there and do some exploration with them down there and really see their perspective on the world open up, that was what it was all about for me. And, you know, the opportunity to get there and, and be, be on the continent and have some of those, those experiences as well was almost secondary because it was about giving the students that step up so that they can go on and, and, and go on to greatness, go on to achieve what they want to achieve. It was a bit about maybe giving them that experience that you'd had up in the air in the fixed wing aircraft flying over with the British uh, Air Force, you know, in a way, wasn't it? It's about giving them an extraordinary experience at a very young age to say, this is what's possible if you put in the effort to apply and you, you know, comply with the logistics and you, you pitch, you know, why you should be the person to go down there. Um, that's a lesson that you can carry on for the rest of your life, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And I think it's about, it's about taking the blinkers off as well. I think a lot of students in Australia and a lot of people in Australia, you go through life very narrowly focused on, on this is what I'm going to do because this is what people before me have done and this is what I know. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's an absolutely reasonable way to, to conduct yourself. But I think removing the blinkers and, and providing an increased perspective of what's actually available in the world and exposing people to people from various backgrounds, uh, people from various cultures, uh, people doing, you know, weird and wonderful jobs and having that experience at a young age can be hugely influential um, and you know I feel very privileged that each one of the three students who I took down you know told me that the experience changed them for the better and actually adjusted their life track for, for what they've told me was the better as well and I think that's one of the privileges that you get of being a teacher is that you have the opportunity to positively influence the next generation of Australians or the next generation, whatever country you're in, uh, the, the next generation of people to 
to realize that there's more that can be done in the world. That there are opportunities to be had and that, you know, that they can achieve their hopes and their dreams just by applying themselves and, 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 and reaching for the stars. I love that question of why not. You know, like it's it's in some ways, I wonder whether or not we're living in a time of excessive safety, uh, where there's a great deal of risk mitigation. There's a lot of fear of the potential for a poor outcome and the effects, both personally and professionally, that, that can have. And there's a fairly unforgiving culture around mistakes and and mishaps, which in some ways can hamper opportunity when you're not willing to go out on a limb and, and try things that have never been tried before or put yourself uh, in, in harm's way potentially, uh, but for that once in a lifetime opportunity or that once in a lifetime experience. And I think about this a lot in surgery because many of the procedures that we do are procedures that had to be tried for the first time, not knowing if they were gonna work. And in fact, had to be tried for the first 50 to 100 times not knowing if they were going to work before you build up a sufficient patient population to say, oh no, this is actually better than the alternative. Um, or it can be done in a way which is going to be successful. And I wonder today what our capacity is to continue to do that, um, when in some ways we have a, uh, a far greater emphasis on the benefit of the current patient versus the benefit of the future patient, um, which is in many ways the way it should be but can also be difficult from a scientific point of view in terms of pushing the boundaries forward in terms of where we want to be and where we want to go. And I think that's true in, in much of science, but particularly in science which deals with humans as a subject. Um, and exploration is one of those science sciences um, in terms of pushing boundaries. And yet, thankfully, I suppose in some ways, adults are, and uh, individuals are able to take on individual and informed risk in many of those areas. Whereas in with healthcare, we're asking other people to take on informed risk, which is a different thing altogether. Um, but it is interesting to me that in that time, in that school and in that place, the question of why not wasn't answered with tremendous scepticism to the point where it was shut down. It was answered with scepticism for uh, the purpose of being thorough, but nonetheless exploring the opportunity. And that's really encouraging. I think one of my great frustrations in life um, is the the expression or the phrase, well, this is how we've always done it. The, the, the question that often people will ask is, well, why are we, why are we doing this? Why is that? And the answer will often be, well, that's why, why, the way we've always done it. Probably it started with my, my time in aviation and, and not only in the Air Force, but then, you know, learning to fly helicopters here in Australia and, and um, doing some commercial um, work as a helicopter pilot here in Australia as well. The, the aviation industry really doesn't say, well, this is the way we've always done it, so this is the way we're going to do it in the future. What they say is, well, there was a mistake here, we're going to learn from that and we're going to improve. And over generations of those mistakes, that's made the avi aviation industry the pinnacle of safety because it imbues this, this culture of learning from from previous experiences and not being averse to changing practices or changing techniques to make the situation better. And from my perspective, there's a lot of crossover to medicine 
with that. And, you know, I'm not the first person to say that. It's a widely held comparison between aviation and medicine. But the, you know, I think as, as doctors, we have a long way to go as a, as a culture or as a, as a medical culture to reach that kind of that kind of culture of adjusting things so that we're getting the optimal outcome based on things that we've known previously. I think when I was doing that, you know, when I was working as a teacher, I was really lucky in that I was supported through the whole process with a headmaster who was tremendously supportive, you know, director of studies who was tremendously supportive and they saw the benefits of these opportunities for the students. And again, it was all about the students. It was about changing their their practice changing their their perspective and, and changing their exposure and, and, and trying to learn from the way things have been done previously to try something else and see if something else would work for opening up their ambition and their future that phrase that that's the way we've always done it is is something that i've learned a lot from because i think it's a good way to progress the conversation no matter what industry you're in to ask questions about for us, clinical practice or procedures or treatment, you know, and, and try and work out a better way to do it. And I think, you know, there's, there's scope to do that across pretty much every industry in Australia. When you think about the question of why not, though, of, of meeting a challenge with the optimism of potential achievement, um, in some way your story uh, reflects that being an inherent reaction, that you were sort of always set up to meet a challenge that way. That from the moment you were reading those stories as a boy, it was sort of you were moulding yourself in, in a way that one of those adventurers would have been. You know, like, how do we meet this challenge? How do we overcome this challenge? How do we push ourselves? But for many people, that's not an automatic reaction. The automatic reaction is, oh, no, that sounds really scary or really concerning or not what people would expect or I might be judged. The reaction is very much a defensive one. And so if someone's listening and they're saying, well, how do I, I build myself more into that type of thinking? How do I take the steps to become more explorative or adventurous in the way that I'm approaching some of these things in order to access those opportunities you're talking about? Um, as a teacher, how do you coach that? How do you bring people to that place? That's a really great question. I think if I was going to answer that, not just for students that I've taught, but for anyone, it's that from my experience, I would say that no matter who you are or what you do, no matter what you're achieving or you hope to achieve, people will judge you. That's the nature of us as human beings. Me, I think, you know, I, I grew up as a, I was a, I'm a quite a tall guy. I'm six foot three. Um, I've been quite tall since I was a young age. So I sort of stuck out like a sore thumb uh, when I was going to school. And, you know, when you stick out as a sore thumb, you're different from everyone else. So you're going to cop a little bit of bullying. I learned pretty quickly that, you know, people are going to judge you. Rightly or wrongly, they're going to form some sort of opinion about you. But you're, it, it really the, the emphasis is not on, on, on them. In a way, the emphasis is on you about how you react to that. The only thing that you can really control in life is how you react to situations. And I think if you can learn to be uh, self-aware and self-actualizing and learn to um, resist the temptation to 
meet the stereotype or meet the cultural norm or um, address the judgment that someone might be giving to you which might critique you or, 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 or limit your opportunities, then I think that's probably the, the way to go. I've always thought about this as sort of failing on your own terms as opposed to failing on somebody else's terms. You know, there's so many times when you feel like you're waiting for somebody else's permission to do something great or extraordinary or exciting that until someone tells you you're good enough or you're able to or gives you that tick of approval, somehow it's not legitimate for you to want to do that yourself. And it's such a battle to get yourself into the headspace where it's like, I don't need anybody else to say it's okay. I'm just going to try. And if I fail, then fine, I fail, but we all fail. But I'm not going to wait for somebody to tell me that I'm ready so that when I fail, it's their fault and not mine. I'm, I'm going to own that failure one way or the other. And that's really hard to do because you have to let yourself down or be willing to let yourself down as opposed to letting somebody else down. And to me, at least, that's, that's very difficult. This week's episode of The Risk Equation is brought to you by Old Drop Coffee. For those of you who don't know, Old Drop is an online coffee marketplace where you can buy local, small business, Melbourne coffee grounds for as little as $14 a bag. That's about 80 cents a cup of coffee. Now, originally, when we partnered with Nick from Alt Drop, we had a 10% discount code that you could apply at checkout. And this was an awesome way to give you guys a chance to support the show and save a bit of cash as well. But as we've continued to work with the guys at Alt Drop, we've decided that instead of a 10% discount, each week's code will instead donate 10% of your purchase to a charity of our guests choosing. So buying a couple of bags of coffee is an awesome way to support the show, but it's also a fantastic way now to support some amazing charities. This week's charity chosen by our guest, Dr. John Cherry, is the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. So our code for this week is RISK ILF. The ILF is a charity supporting extremely remote Indigenous communities by supplying books and running programs to help make a difference to the lives of hundreds of Indigenous families. A $25 donation buys three or more culturally relevant books. So visit the indigenousliteracyfoundation.org.au for more information. And thanks to Alt Drop for sponsoring this week's episode. Again, each purchase using the code RISKILF will donate 10% of your checkout price to the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. So thanks again for supporting the show. You went from fixed-wing uh, Air Force pilot in the reserves and studying astrophysics in Manchester to teacher taking students to Antarctica, and then at some point in time in that, you decided that you wanted to be a doctor as well. And so tell me when you made that decision and how it came to be that you wound up studying medicine after working as the deputy science director for a private high school in Sydney. So in amongst all of that, um, I was working as an expedition leader, running expeditions to weird and wonderful places around the world. And it was actually on that expedition to Antarctica, after I'd run some other expeditions to other places, that I met a really inspiring doctor. But it wasn't sort of the title or the letters after his name that inspired me. It was He was also spent a huge amount of time and, and effort building sustainable surgical training programs in various countries around the world, various developing nations around the world. And it was his legacy of, of 
doing that over decades that I just thought what a tremendous footprint he's leaving and what a tremendously positive footprint that he's leaving. His footprint will affect generations of of people going forward and affect who knows how many people but a lot of people and affect their care in a really positive way and i i loved teaching i still miss teaching if i'm honest like i i I loved being a teacher and i had some really wonderful opportunities as a teacher but for me it sort of opened my eyes to the opportunity that medicine would provide to potentially leave an even bigger footprint down the track and so i came back from that expedition and applied to sit the uh, postgraduate medical school entry exams which you and I both know are a a beast of a thing and somehow managed to get through that and uh, was offered an interview at the University of Wollongong and jumped at it with uh, open arms and was lucky enough to get a spot there and then just didn't look back really and just uh, pushed on through. Being in a a well-paid secure job at a a good institution with good career prospects and putting your hand up and saying, actually, I I want to do something else. I'm going to leave this career and I'm going to go and pursue something completely different and go from, you know, middle level kind of position in, in the industry that I was in to the very, very bottom. That's intimidating, you know, and that that's confronting. And, you know, I'm not the first and person to go through it. I won't be the last, but my gosh, it was worth it. Although I miss education, you know, I've found my calling. I feel incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged to do what I do. And the opportunity to, even on a small scale, just in a shift, have a positive interaction with patients is an absolute privilege that I I really struggle to put into words. I think that's characteristically understated of you, John, to to say that luck was so much involved in this process. Because of course, we, we know that those opportunities are a product of taking advantage of different uh, experiences and uh, and choices as they come up. That you don't meet that doctor unless you choose to be an expedition leader, working in multiple different stations, and that takes work. You know, you don't end up having kids in Antarctica having once in a lifetime experiences unless you're willing to go and talk to other parents and individuals who have this common interest to you and linking with them and building relationships with them and then delivering on those relationships in an effective way. Um, and you don't score well on the, the game set unless you've dedicated your life to the pursuit of science up until that point and teaching it well and studying it well such that you're answering those questions well. All of those are consequences of consistent action in, in the same direction. And I think that's important for people to think about because you can seem like the small things don't matter. It can seem like the small decisions aren't really pushing you forward towards your ultimate goal and that you need that lucky break that people talk about in order to get to where you want to be. But in reality, that lucky break is often a consequence of all of those small actions cumulatively impacted on one key moment where it all comes together. And that's as true for your story as it is for everyone who's achieved great things, I think, um, with very few exceptions. Um in my opinion. And I think that it's really important we don't just put that down to luck because it can make it seem unachievable to people when in fact it is very achievable to many, many people, just in different ways to perhaps the story that you're telling. And the other aspect of it is about pure brute force of will pushing towards something that you're interested in. Because I think that it's easy for people to think, hey, you've gone into medical school. It's probably worth focusing on becoming a doctor. But you managed to find a program called the John Flynn program, 
which was originally designed as a way of encouraging doctors to go and work in rural settings, about giving them opportunities to go and work in different country towns and, and hopefully gain a love for rural medicine and then go and work in those communities. Um, and you decided just to go a little bit more rural than that. And you found a way to get the John Flynn program to deliver you to Antarctica as a medical student. And that would have taken some work. And so I'm interested if you could tell us about the experience of being a medical student down south, uh, working down there, but also about taking those opportunities and molding them into something that works for the career that you're looking for. So I think you used the phrase there, um, pure brute force of will, I think is what you said. Um, I think my mum and my partner would both describe that as stubbornness. I think there has to be an element of stubbornness in, 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 in what you do. And a, a, a fierceness in, in, in seeking out opportunities to get you to where you want to go. The opportunity for me was for the John Flynn program. Again, a lot of being in the right place at the right time, but I think you're absolutely right. We, we mentioned on it before, it's that, that momentum, it's those each step forward makes the next step forward easier. And when I was a first year medical student, the opportunity for the John Flynn placement program, which is run through the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine, which is the GP college focused on training doctors for rural and remote Australia, that came up as an opportunity. And within that, there was a sort of a, an opportunity to apply within make one application and then a sort of a sub-application as well to apply to uh, be placed with the Australian Antarctic program and um, you know this was a, a match made in heaven in my eyes but I needed to obviously pursue that and and pursue that fiercely and put in an application and, and I remember coming out of it's like sort of a phone interview that we had to have um, because it's a fairly sort of sub-specialized environment that we were applying to come into and I came out of an anatomy lab as a first year medical student. And, you know, I didn't have a anatomy background before medicine. I wasn't a, uh, a physio or a, um, hadn't worked in, in, in health beforehand. So I came out of the anatomy lab and my head was spinning and um, I had this interview that I had to do. And I remember going around the back of the anatomy lab uh, to uh, sort of almost like the back alley getting on the phone with the, the chief medical officer at the Australian Antarctic Division and having this interview. And, um, you know, all, all went well and I was lucky enough to get a position. But, you know, the, the romance of it and the, 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 the brilliance of that opportunity is really contrasted against the fact that I was sitting in an alleyway <laughs> on a phone having an interview with someone. But again, it was just about seizing that opportunity that presented and that ended up giving me... Um, the opportunity to come to Hobart four years in a row and and spend time at head office in Hobart with the Antarctic Division, uh, and then uh, actually have a an ex be part of an expedition to Antarctica to Casey Station as a, a final year medical student just before starting internship, and then I think you know that's probably started the wheels in motion for what I'm about to do with with going down to be the the doctor down there for a for a winter for a season as the sole medical practitioner. Um, so again, like I was sort of saying before, it's about that momentum and each step that you take, making the next step easier to, to take. Discovery's onboard computers are primary control of all the vehicle's critical functions. 
T minus 17 seconds and count. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, So at the time of this recording, uh, SpaceX recently launched another group of astronauts to the International Space Station. And uh, that was a very inspiring moment, I think, to, to see a private enterprise uh, take over the role of historically a government organization and safely deliver astronauts to, I think, one of the world's most successful scientific missions um, uh, into close orbit. And that is, in some ways, a stepping stone towards uh, even further endeavors to, to Mars, uh, back to the moon. Um, and there's a lot of planning at the moment going on toward how do we do that safely and sustainably? Um, and how do we implement modern technology in that? And particularly from a healthcare point of view, when we're talking about longer missions than simply going into close orbit or going for a week into space, potentially going for months if it's a Mars trip at a time, how do we get the human body through that? And that's a really fascinating and unique question to ask with a lot of unknowns still. Um, but you managed to find your way uh, to NASA and the European Space Agency during your medical degree and start helping answer some of those questions. And I'm just interested in, in how you approach those questions with the teams over there and, and what your role was uh, in, in guiding some of the planning that's working toward those. Yeah, so um, when I was at, the, at NASA, at the Johnson Space Centre, I was looking at mapping NASA's telemedicine capability for a future mission to Mars. Basically, what medical capacity they had that could be integrated into a telemedicine framework. The idea behind that being that, you know, crews that go to Mars will need to have increased autonomy because of the distance but also because of the latency in communications so the communication delay and then when i was at the european space agency um sort of stumbled into a, a project that's been really um, influential for me and, and led to some really wonderful opportunities which was redesigning all the um, hands-on medical training that the european astronaut corps um, do so every european astronaut before they launch to the International Space Station now does my training with the curriculum that I developed. Um, and a part of that is hands-on training and then a sort of a subsection of that is also teaching them ultrasound skills um, as there's an ultrasound on the International Space Station that was previously pretty much just used for, for research but can now be used for clinical uses as well. For me, I, I think I've been a space nerd since as as, since as far back as my memories go, I, uh, I take great pleasure in standing under the stars and looking up and craning my neck and, uh, and enjoying the view. And the opportunity to contribute to that industry, even in a small part, um, has been uh, inspiring and, and humbling and, and, and just such a privilege for me. It's also led to an opportunity to, to start a PhD in that field as well, um, which is what I'm currently doing, uh, looking at the, um, the emergency medical capabilities that would be needed for a, 
long duration mission back to the moon or, or back to Mars and um, has led to some opportunities for me to work with the Australian Space Agency as well. And I don't say any of those things to brag or name drop. The reason I say that is because I think it harks back to what we were saying before about you chase down one opportunity, you chase down one experience and it makes the next experience easier to get. And then when you've got two experiences under your belt, it makes that third one easier to get. And I think that's applicable to any industry that you want to work in. The opportunity to build that knowledge behind you, build that portfolio behind you, almost propels you forward with a momentum that is something that you need to drive less because you have to start by initially chasing those opportunities and then after a time those opportunities start coming to you. It's been really impactful for me reflecting on that over the last uh, few years about you know some of the stuff that I've chased down and you know the NASA and working for NASA and working for the European Space Agency uh, are two of those big things. But then how that's led to things down the track that I'm currently doing now, and there's very much a direct connection between them, even though it might not be a straight line. So for me, that's been really uh, really insightful to reflect on that. It's a big thing that I believe in that no experience is ever wasted, however much we might think it is at the time. And when you switched from teaching to medicine, I imagine that you probably thought to yourself in some of those quieter moments that maybe all of that time that you'd spent becoming a good educator and a good teacher in terms of developing formal curriculums and mentoring students and so forth might be less relevant or less readily applied once you start a clinical practice as a doctor. And yet, interestingly enough, developing a curriculum for the use of ultrasound in the protocols for European space uh, exploration and training for their astronaut corps so perfectly fits somebody who's had training in formal curriculum development as a teacher and then has the clinical or the medical insight or knowledge to be able to see an opportunity to train people in an effective way using different industries experiences to get the best optimal outcome and it's such a wonderful demonstration of the fact that taking your interest in multiple varied places can be a some benefit for humanity in this case but certainly for various industries and it's so easy to lose sight of that i think when we feel like we have to pursue a particular direction just because we've always pursued a particular direction and we'll lose so much ground if we change roles or uh, we'll somehow go back to square one and then we'll have to rebuild and we're getting older and and society's expectation is that we can't be old and be junior you know it's such an easy trap to fall into but it's also a fallacy it's not true um, and, and it's a really nice demonstration of that in, in your experience. And also, I suppose, that learning uh, to humble yourself um, at various points in your life is such an important experience as well in terms of learning to not ever accept yourself as being an expert or perfect at something, to, to be able to be junior again or take on a junior mindset um, so that you can keep pushing in different directions. I'm sure that must be valuable, um, particularly when you're preparing to go into a place where you're in some ways the sole expert, but also junior in every field in which you're asked to be the sole expert. Yeah, Yeah, I think um, there's probably nothing more humbling than leaving a a career with good prospects and a good income and going into your first lecture at medical school and realizing what you've let yourself in for. Tell me about that experience of going from expert uh, to going to base level learner again about 
what, what that experience was like, even sitting in that medical school lecture for the first time and realizing that you're now no longer at the top of the pecking order and you're starting from almost square one. Um, how do you stop that from becoming something that, that can impede you? And how do you make that a motivating force or how, or how do you deal with that for people who are in that position now? So I mentioned before when we were talking about being stubborn and I think an element of stubbornness, an element of self-belief, probably an element of of not believing that the challenge is insurmountable. Someone once told me when I had a really big deadline that I was trying to meet, or someone once told me uh, to offer some advice, you know, how do you eat an elephant? And I said, what do you mean, how do you eat an elephant? And they said, how do you eat an elephant? I said, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And they said, well, you eat an elephant one forkful at a time. So many of the things that we do in our lives seem huge from personal things with relationships or from professional opportunities. They all seem sometimes insurmountable. But again, it's about one mouthful at a time, taking that one step forward. Um, and I think when, when you're struggling, maintaining a focus on why you're doing it, I think it's very easy to get bogged down in the technicalities or the, um, the minutiae of the details or the, the stress of exams or the difficulty of the politics of the environment you're in. And it's very easy to focus on those things. And I think a lot of people that I've worked with do. And I think that's probably a natural response. But if you have that broader vision and you have that broader objective, and you know, when I was at medical school, the broader objective was, well, I'm here because I met an inspiring doctor and I want to become a doctor to leave a, a positive footprint for humanity as naive or as, as, as uh, idealistic as that might be. That was the objective and still is in a, in, in a big way. Um, maintaining a focus on that meant that when it came time to sit those big exams, yeah, they were hard, yeah, it was stressful, but you're doing it for a reason. You're not doing it to submit yourself to pain and agony for the sake of pain and agony. You're going through a, a step, a hurdle, a process so that you have the opportunity to do something bigger or better or greater or something that you're interested in more broadly. So for me, that was certainly the motivation to, to maintain the fury to get through medical school um, and continues to be the reason to maintain the fury to, with the training programs I'm doing and the study that I need to do for those things. So um, I think there's the opportunity to maintain that focus on the objective is, is key because it offers perspective that is otherwise lost um, and offers an opportunity to realise the reason behind what you're doing. One of the uh, things that I think we all have to uh, come to terms with is where the expectation meets the reality in many of these goals and in these dreams and in these aims. Um, because oftentimes the expectation is the motivating factor. It's the story of that 
experience you had with the orthopedic surgeon or uh, it's the uh, history and the legacy of the uh, Royal Air Force and the sort of the romance of all of that. Um, and then you have to come to terms with the reality. And I'm sort of reminded a little bit, I suppose, in your context um, of the book by Alfred Lansig um, in Shackleton's Endurance, which is probably one of the most famous ex books ever told of the uh, Antarctic expedition. And I think I'm remembering this correctly when I when I say that Shackleton had to do a significant amount of fundraising before that uh, trip in which he had to sell the romance in a way of what was being undertaken and what was being achieved and, and uh, allow that to drive donations and, and resources into his expedition. And yet when that mission went astray, when they became uh, stranded in Antarctica for a period of a couple of years, um, almost, and had to do some of the most extraordinary uh, human accomplishments in order to just survive, um, that reality suddenly hits home. And it's not so romantic anymore. It's, it's really real. And I think that's often true in medicine, where people are sold by the romance of how it's portrayed in the media. And yet when you hit the hospital and, and suddenly you're faced with the death and the disease and, and the heartache, that, that it becomes very real. And I'm sure that's true when preparing for uh, missions like the one that you're about to undertake down south as well, is about trying to temper those romances with the reality of what is being required and being asked. Um, and I'm interested in how you approach that. Um, now with, with many experiences under the belt and, and about to embark on perhaps the greatest challenge yet um, that you've had to face? I think the going into medical school, you, you think you have an idea of what being a doctor is like. Yes, there are wins, and yes, there's the opportunity to uh, make a positive contribution. If you're lucky, save a life. Um, but there's also a lot of things that aren't glamorous. And yes, there's the, the, the heartache and the, the, the death and the, and the pain associated with what we do. Um, but there's also just the day-to-day -day realities of life as a doctor. You know the stress, the time pressures, the um, the relationships with colleagues, the politics of a hospital environment, the politics of a workplace. You know there are numerous challenges that you know you don't see on ER or Scrubs or any one of these shows. In a similar way, an expedition, regardless of where it's to, has challenges associated with it. Um, the idea of the romance of the expedition is in a similar way the romance of, of medicine. You know, you, you have an idea in your head of what it should be like because that's the picture that you've painted for yourself. For me, I think the important thing, regardless of whether it's a, an expedition to Antarctica or, you know, a mountaineering expedition or a, um, uh, an expedition to, 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 to Central America, wherever it might be, um, yes, there's the romance of it that how you might want to sell to the people sponsoring the expedition. But I think having an understanding of the reality of the day-to-day -day of what that actually looks like is really important. Um, because I think if you go into an environment or an event or a, um, an experience and your expectation is substantially different to your reality, 
you are going to struggle. If there's that disconnect between the experience, the reality and the expectation, there's going to be a disharmony there. And that's going to lead to difficulty. So I think the starting by trying to understand the intricacies of what, for example, a trip to Antarctica or a year in Antarctica as a doctor actually involves, what's the day-to-day, what are some of the highlights to look forward to, what are some of the challenges, and having open and honest conversations about those with colleagues, with my partner, with friends, um, I think is the foundation for it. Because I think if you go into any environment and you're wearing the rose-tinted glasses, well, that rose tint's going to wear off pretty quickly. And I'm sure you've seen in, in your careers, you know, people who've been um, become bitter or, or, or disinterested or um, affected by that disconnect. But I think if you can go in with a, a reality check and a, 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 a realistic expectation of what you're in for, that's the foundation. And then the the highlights, the opportunities, the 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 real kind of icing on the cake moments. Well, that that adds to things and that makes things better. And you're you're going from a baseline to a higher point rather than coming in high and then ending up low because you've got that disconnect. So I try no no matter what I'm sort of doing, I try and understand the the realities of it. Be it you know working for NASA or. Or, or heading to Antarctica or working as a teacher or whatever it may be because all of these things sound dramatic and wonderful and, and adventurous and so on but the reality is often very different from that. There's a very small crowd of people who have ever been doctors on Antarctica, um, a, a very select group. And I'm interested in, in what it felt like uh, the first time that you uh, realised that your name was going to be added to that list uh, and you started in real terms to prepare to be one of those people. Um, that must have been pretty special for someone who'd been thinking about this since they were six years old. Uh, humbling is what I would say. Humbling to have that opportunity. Humbling to be part of a small club. You're right, there's not many people who've done that job. Uh, Humbling to be in fairly esteemed company. Humbling to face the reality of what that means and the opportunity that that presents. Um, Humbling to have develop relationships with colleagues who believe that you're up to that challenge. But I think the the reality is I recognise that I'm here today because of the opportunities I've had previously and because of the people that have invested in me. Um, I don't want people to think that I'm, I've done all of these things on my own. The reason I've had opportunities to um, achieve some of the things that I've achieved or work in some of the places that I've worked is because I've had the support of, of friends, of family, of 
um, of colleagues, of my partner, you know, um, you know, my, my partner is a, is a wonderful woman. She's incredibly supportive. Um, and I think she recognises that there's uh, an ambition there. There's a, there's a drive, there's a desire to, to, to try and improve the way we do things within medicine, but also improve the impact that medicine can have on people and improve the, 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 the footprint with which we leave on the world. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for the fierce support that she gives me. You know, I don't, I don't want people to think that I operate in isolation and that I'm off gallivanting around the world doing these things. Uh, without the the support of friends and family because the the reality is without that support I wouldn't be able to do these things come on John let's be honest we know it's all you (laughs) we're going to cut all of that out and you're going to sound like a really ungracious person (laughs) um, one of the things that I love about your story is it gives evidence to the fact that um, you can take a convoluted route toward amazing opportunities but that route can be so rewarding in so many different ways and cumulatively lead to a unique uh, potential uh, benefit uh, to your community and and to yourself as an individual and I think that's such an important lesson for us to be mindful of today and I'm sure there's many people who will listen to this episode who will be reinvigorated uh, in their uh, efforts towards living what you call the extraordinary life but perhaps in in an unconventional way Um, and I'm really grateful that you took the time this evening to have a chat to me and and to have a chat to everyone who's listening. Um, And I'm so excited uh, for your experience down south and I'm so grateful that you're going to be the person there because I really couldn't think of anyone who I would prefer to have representing us as the sole medical practitioner um, down in Antarctica for 12 months. Um, And I'm really hopeful that you'll come back onto the show once you finish that so that we can revisit this conversation with some new experiences and with some new reflections on what it's like to to live that life and to work in that sort of location. So thank you. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. As always, thank you for having me on and I'd absolutely love to come back and have a chat uh, later on when I'm back or even when I'm down there and, and let you know how it's going.